Prose Pastels Two, The Mirror in the Hall of Ebony. From the nethermost profund of slumber, from a gulf beyond the sun and stars that illume the Lethian shoals and the vague lands of somnolent visions, I floated on a black, unrippling tide to the dark threshold of a dream. And in this dream I stood at the end of a long hall that was sealed and floored and walled with sable ebony, and was lit with a light that fell not from the sun or moon, nor from any lamp. The hall was without doors or windows, and at the further extreme an oval mirror was framed in the wall. And standing there I remembered nothing of all that had been, and the other dreams of sleep, and the dream of birth, and of everything thereafter were alike forgotten. And forgotten, too, was the name I had found among men, and the other names whereby the daughters of dream had known me, and memory was no older than my coming to that hall. But I wondered not, nor was I troubled thereby, and naught was strange to me, for the tide that had borne me to this threshold was the tide of Leith. Anon, though, I knew not why. My feet were drawn adown the hall, and I approached the oval mirror. And in the mirror I beheld the haggard face that was mine, and the red mark on the cheek, where the one I loved had struck me in her anger, and the mark on the throat where her lips had kissed me in amorous devotion. And seeing this, I remembered all that had been, and the other dreams of sleep, and the dream of birth, and of everything thereafter alike returned to me. And thus I recalled the name I had assumed beneath the terrene sun, and the names I had borne beneath the sons of sleep and of reverie. And I marveled much, and was enormously troubled, and all things were most strange to me, and all things were as of yore. End of section 7. Prose Pastels 2. Prose Pastels 3. The Muse of Hyperborea. Too far away is her wan and mortal face, and too remote are the snows of her lethal breast for mine eyes to behold them ever. But at whiles her whisper comes to me like a chill unearthly wind that is faint from traversing the gulfs between the worlds and has flown over ultimate horizons of ice-bound deserts. And she speaks to me in a tongue I have never heard but have always known. And she tells of deathly things and of things beautiful beyond the ecstatic desires of love. Her speech is not of good or evil, nor of anything that is desired or conceived or believed by the termites of earth, and the air she breathes, and the lands wherein she roams, would blast like the utter cold of sidereal space. And her eyes would blind the vision of men like suns, and her kiss, if one should ever attain it, would wither and slay like the kiss of lightning. But hearing her far, infrequent whisper, I behold a vision of vast auroras on continents that are wider than the world, and seas too great for the enterprise of human keels. And at times I stammer forth the strange tidings that she brings. Though none will welcome them, and none will believe or listen. And in some dawn of the desperate years I shall go forth and follow where she calls to seek the high and beatific doom of her snow-paled distances, to perish amid her indesecrate horizons. End of Section 8. Prose Pastels 3. Prose Pastels 4. The Lotus and the Moon. I stood with my beloved by the lotus pool, when the moon was round as the great ivory breast of a titanus, and the flowers were full-blown and pale upon the water. And I said to my beloved, I would that thou shouldst love me well to-night, for never again shall there be a night like this, with the meeting of thee and me by this pool with flowers blown, but not overblown. But she demurred, and was perverse, and loved me not as I would that she should love me. And after several nights we stood again by the lotus pool, when the moon was hollow as an aging breast, and the petals of the flowers had fallen apart on the water. 
and now my beloved was fain to love me well, and all was well between us. But in my heart I mourned for that other night, when the moon was round as the great ivory breast of a titanus, and the flowers were full-blown and pale upon the water. End of section 9. Prose Pastels 4. Prose Pastels 5. The Passing of Aphrodite. In all the lands of Valerian, from mountain valleys rimmed with unmelting snow, to the great cliffs of sand whose reflex darkens a sleepy, tepid sea, were lit, as of old, the green and amethyst fires of summer. Spices were on the wind that mountaineers had met in the high glaciers, and the eldest wood of cypress, frowning on a sky-clear bay, was illumined by scarlet orchids. But the heart of the poet Faniol was an urn of black jade overfraught by love with sodden ashes, and because he wished to forget for a time the mockery of myrtles, Faniol walked alone in the waste bordering upon Alarion, in a place that great fires had blackened long ago, and which knew not the pine or the violet, the cypress or the myrtle. There as the day grew old he came to an unsailed ocean, whose waters were dark and still under the falling sun, and bore not the memorial voices of other seas, and Faniol paused and lingered upon the ashen shore, and dreamt a while of that sea whose name is Oblivion. Then from beneath the westering sun, whose bleak light was prone on his forehead, a barge appeared and swiftly drew to the land, albeit there was no wind, and the oars hung idly on the foamless wave, and Faniol saw that the barge was wrought of ebony, fretted with curious anaglyphs, and carved with luxurious forms of gods and beasts, of satyrs and goddesses and women, and the figurehead was a black eros, with full unsmiling mouth and implacable sapphire eyes averted, as if intent upon things not lightly to be named or revealed. Upon the deck of the barge were two women, one pale as the northern moon, and the other swart as equatorial midnight. But both were clad imperially, and bore the mien of goddesses, or of those who dwell near to the goddesses, without word or gesture, they regarded Faniol, and marveling he inquired, What seek ye? Then with one voice that was like the voice of Hesperian airs among palms at evening twilight in the fortunate isles, they answered, saying, We wait the goddess Aphrodite, who departs in weariness and sorrow from Alarion, and from all the lands of this world of petty loves and pettier mortalities. Thou, because thou art a poet, and hast known the great sovereignty of love, shall behold her departure. But they, the men of the court, the marketplace, and the temple, shall receive no message nor sign of her going forth, and will scarcely dream that she is gone. Now, O Faniol, the time, the goddess, and the going forth are at hand. Even as they ceased, one came across the desert, and her coming was a light on the far hills, and where she trod the lengthening shadows shrunk, and the gray waste put on the purple asphodels and the deep verdure it had worn when those queens were young, that now are a darkening legend and a dust of mummia. Even to the shore she came and stood before Faniol, while the sunset greatened, filling sky and sea with a flush as of new-blown blossoms, or the inmost rose of that coiling shell which was consecrate to her in old time. Without robe or circlet or garland, crowned and clad only with the sunset, fair with the dreams of man, but fairer yet than all dreams. Thus she waited, smiling tranquilly, who is life or death, despair or rapture, vision or flesh, to gods and poets and galaxies unknowable. But, filled with a wonder that was also love, or much more than love, the poet could find no greeting. Farewell, O Faniol, she said, and her voice was the sighing of remote waters, the murmur of waters, moon withdrawn, forsaking not without sorrow a proud island tall with palms. 
Thou hast known me and worshipped all thy days till now, but the hour of my departure is come. I go, and when I am gone, thou shalt worship still and shalt not know me. For the destinies are thus, and not forever to any man, to any world, or to any god, is it given to possess me wholly. Autumn and spring will return when I am past, the one with yellow leaves, the other with yellow violets. Birds will haunt the renewing myrtles, and many little loves will be thine. Not again to thee or to any man will return the perfect vision and the perfect flesh of the goddess. Ending thus, she stepped from that ashen strand to the dark prow of the barge. And even as it had come, without wafture or wind or movement of oar, the barge put out on a sea covered with the fallen, fading petals of sunset. Quickly it vanished from view, while the desert lost those ancient asphodels and the deep of verdure it had worn again for a little. Darkness having conquered Alarion came slow and furtive on the path of Aphrodite. Shadows mustered immeasurably to the gray hills, and the heart of the poet Faniol was an urn of black jade, overfraught by love with sodden ashes. End of section 10, Prose Pastels 5 Read by Ben Tucker The Epiphany of Death Dedicated to H.P. Lovecraft I find it peculiarly difficult to express the exact nature of the sentiment which Tomeron had always evoked in me. However, I am sure that the feeling never partook at any time of what is ordinarily known as friendship. It was a compound of unusual aesthetic and intellectual elements, and was somehow closely allied in my thoughts with the same fascination that has drawn me ever since early childhood toward all things that are remote in space and time, or which have about them the irresolvable twilight of antiquity. Somehow Tomeron seemed never to belong to the present, but one could readily have imagined him as living in some bygone age. About him there was nothing whatever of the lineaments of our own period, and he even went so far as to affect in his costume an approximation to the garments that were worn several centuries ago. His complexion was extremely pale and cadaverous, and he stooped heavily from poring over ancient tomes and no less ancient maps. He moved always with the slow, meditative pace of one who dwells among far-off reveries and memories, and he spoke often of people and events and ideas that have long been forgotten. For the most part, he was apparently unheedful of present things, and I felt that for him the huge city of Ptolemides, in which we both dwelt with all its manifold clamor and tumult, was little more than a labyrinth of painted vapors. Oddly enough, there was a like vagueness in the attitude of others towards Tomeron, and though he had always been accepted without question as a representative of the noble and otherwise extinct family from which he claimed descent, nothing appeared to be known about his actual birth and antecedents. With two servants who were both deaf-mutes, who were very old and who likewise wore the raiment of a former age, he lived in the semi-ruinous mansion of his ancestors, where, it was said, none of the family had dwelt for many generations. There he pursued the occult and recondite studies that were so congenial to his mind, and there at certain intervals I was wont to visit him. I cannot recall the precise date and circumstances of the beginning of my acquaintance with Tomeron, though I come of a hardy line that is noted for the sanity of its constitution, my faculties have been woefully shaken by the horror of the happening with which that acquaintance ended. My memory is not what it was, and there are certain lacunae for which my readers must contrive to forgive me. The only wonder is that my powers of recollection have survived at all, beneath the hideous burden they have had to bear. For, in a more than metaphoric sense, I have been as one condemned to carry with him at all times and in all places the loathsome incubus of things long dead and corrupt. I can readily recall, however, the studies to which Tomeron had devoted himself. The lost demonian volumes from Hyperborea and Mu and Atlantis, with which his library shelves were heaped to the ceiling, and the queer charts, not of any land that lies above the surface of the earth, on which he 
poured by perpetual candlelight. I shall not speak of these studies, for they would seem too fantastic and too macabre for credibility. And that which I have to relate is incredible enough in itself. I shall speak, however, of certain strange ideas with which Tomeron was much preoccupied, and concerning which he so often discoursed to me in that deep, guttural, and monotonous voice of his, that had the reverberation of unsounded caverns in its tones and cadences. He maintained that life and death were not the fixed conditions that people commonly believe them to be, that the two realms were often intermingled in ways not readily discerned and had penumbral borderlands, that the dead were not always dead, nor the living, as such terms are habitually understood. But the manner in which he spoke of those ideas was extremely vague and general, and I could never induce him to specify his meaning or to proffer some concrete illustration that would render it intelligible to a mentality such as mine, that was unused to dealing in the cobwebs of abstraction. Behind his words there hovered, or seemed to hover, a legion of dark, amorphous images that I could never formulate or depict to myself in any way till the fatal denouement of our descent into the catacombs of Ptolemides. I have already said that my feeling for Tomeron was never anything that could be classified as friendship, but even from the first I was well aware that Tomeron had a curious fondness for me, a fondness whose nature I could not comprehend, and with which I could hardly even sympathize. Though he fascinated me at all times, there were occasions when my interest was not unalloyed with a sense of actual repulsion. At whiles, his pallor was too cadaverous, too suggestive of a fungi that have grown in the dark, or of leprous bones by moonlight, and the stoop of his shoulders conveyed to my brain the idea that they bore a burden of centuries through which no man could conceivably have lived. He aroused always a certain awe in me, and the awe was sometimes mingled with an indeterminate fear. I do not remember how long our acquaintance had continued, but I do remember that he spoke with increasing frequency toward the end of those bizarre ideas at which I have hinted. Also, I felt that he was troubled about something, for he often looked at me with a mournful gleam in his hollow eyes, and sometimes he would speak with peculiar stress of the great regard that he had for me. And one night he said, Theolus, the time is coming when you must know the truth, must know me as I am, and not as I have been permitted to seem. There is a term to all things, and all things are obedient to inexorable laws. I would that it were otherwise, but neither I nor any man, among the living or among the dead, can lengthen at will the term of any state or condition of being, or alter the laws that decree such conditions." Perhaps it was well that I did not understand him, and that I was unable to attach much importance to his words or to the singular intentness of his bearing as he uttered them. For a few more days I was spared the knowledge which I now carry. Then one evening Tomeron spoke thus, "'I am now compelled to ask an odd favor of you, which I hope you will grant me, in consideration of our long friendship.' The favor is that you accompany me this very night to those vaults of my family which lie in the catacombs of Ptolemides. Though much surprised by the request, and not altogether pleased, I was nevertheless unable to deny him. I could not imagine the purpose of such a visit as the one proposed, but as was my wont, I forbore to interrogate Tomeron, and merely told him that I would accompany him to the vaults, if such were his desire. "'I thank you, Theolus, for this proof of friendship,' he replied earnestly. "'Believe me, I am loath to ask it, but there has been a certain deception, an odd misunderstanding which cannot go on any longer. Tonight you will know the truth.' Carrying torches, we left the mansion of Tomeron and sought the ancient catacombs of Ptolemides, which lie beyond the walls and have long been disused for there is now a fine necropolis in the very heart of the city. The moon had gone down beyond the desert that encroaches toward the catacombs, and we were forced to light our torches long before we came to the subterranean adits, 
for the rays of Mars and Jupiter in a sodden and funereal sky were not enough to illumine the perilous path we followed among mounds and fallen obelisks and broken graves. At length we discovered the dark and weed-choked entrance of the charnels, and here Tomeron led the way with a swiftness and surety of footing that bespoke long familiarity with the place. Entering, we found ourselves in a crumbling passage where the bones of dilapidated skeletons were scattered amid the rubble that had fallen from the sides and roof. A choking stench of stagnant air and of age-old corruption made me pause for a moment, but Tomeron scarcely appeared to perceive it, for he strode onward, lifting his torch and beckoning me to follow. We traversed many vaults in which Moldy bones and verdigree-eaten sarcophagi were piled about the walls, or strewn where desecrating thieves had left them in bygone years. The air was increasingly dank, chill and miasmal, and mephitic shadows crouched or swayed before our torches in every niche and corner. Also, as we went onward, the walls became more ruinous, and the bones we saw on every hand were greener with the mold of time. At last we rounded a sudden angle of the low cavern we were following. Here we came to vaults that evidently belonged to some noble family, for they were quite spacious, and there was but one sarcophagus in each vault. "'My ancestors and family lie here,' said Tomeron. We reached the end of the cavern and were confronted by a blank wall. At one side was the final vault, in which an empty sarcophagus stood open. The sarcophagus was wrought of the finest bronze and was richly carven. Tomeron paused before the vault and turned to me. By the flickering, uncertain light, I thought that I saw a look of strange and unaccountable distress on his features. "'I must beg you to withdraw for a moment,' he said, in a low and sorrowful voice. Afterwards you can return. Surprised and puzzled, I obeyed his request and went slowly back along the cavern for some distance. Then I returned to the place where I had left him. My surprise was heightened when I found that he had extinguished his torch and had dropped it on the threshold of the final vault. Also, Tomeron himself was not visible anywhere. Entering the vault, since there was no other place where he could have hidden himself, I looked about for him, but the room was empty. At least I deemed it empty till I looked again at the richly carven sarcophagus, and saw that it was now tenanted, for a cadaver lay within, shrouded in a winding sheet of a sort that had not been used for centuries in Ptolemides. I drew nigh to the sarcophagus, and peering into the face of the cadaver, I saw that it bore a fearful and strange resemblance to the face of Tomeron, though it was bloated and puffed with the adiposeer of death, and was purple with the shadows of decay, as after long ages in a charnel air. And looking again, I saw that it was, indeed, Tomeron. I would have screamed aloud with the horror that came upon me, but my lips were benumbed and frozen, and I could only whisper Tomeron's name, but as I whispered it, the lips of the cadaver seemed to part, and the tip of its tongue protruded between them, and I thought that the tip trembled, as if Tomeron were about to speak and answer me. But gazing more closely, I saw that the trembling was merely the movement of worms as they twisted up and down and to and fro and sought to crowd each other from Tomeron's tongue. End of section 11 the Epiphany of Death. Necromancy My heart is made a necromancer's glass, Where homeless forms and exile phantoms teem, Where faces of forgotten sorrows gleam, And dead despairs archaic peer and pass. Gray longings of some weary heart that was Possess me, and the multiple supreme, unwildered hope and star-emblazoned dream of questing armies, ancient queen and lass. Risen vampire-like from out the wormy mold, deep in the magic mirror 
of my heart. Behold their perished beauty, and depart, and now from black Aphelions far and cold, swimming in deathly light on charnel skies, the enormous ghosts of bygone worlds arise. End of section 12. Necromancy. Clark Ashton Smith, an autobiographette. I am inclined to think that my life is a pretty good exemplification of the theories propounded by Lester Anderson in his interesting and provocative article on superstition. Anyhow, I was born on Friday the 13th, under Capricornus and Saturn, and have been flirting with most of the other orthodox jinxes ever since. I do not whistle in the dark. I have never gone in for dream books or psychoanalysis, and I make a habit of walking under ladders when it is more convenient to do this than circumambulate the obstruction. As to black cats, well, I have owned one for many years, a most sinister-looking creature with all the aspects of an old-time wizard's familiar. Perhaps all this may help to explain the kumis and the coconut, and may account for my ability to peruse the most horrendous stuff without batting an eyelash. Also, since there are modern superstitions as well as ancient ones, it may throw a light on my complete lack of faith in the five-year plan, epic, and all other cockeyed utopian schemes. Moreover, it may help to explain my open mind in regard to all outre and inexplicable phenomena, and the fact that I can take the theories of Einstein, as well as of modern science in general, with a salutary pinch of saline seasoning. End of section 13. Clark Ashton Smith, an autobiographette. On Fantasy We have been told that literature dealing with the imaginative and fantastic is out of favor among the intellectuals, whoever they are. Only the real, whatever that is or may be, is admissible for treatment and writers must confine themselves to themes well within the range of statisticians, lightning calculators, Freud and Kraft Ebbing, the Hearst and McFadden publications, NRA, and mail-order catalogues. Chimeras are no longer the mode. The infinite has been abolished. Mystery is obsolete, and Sphinx and Medusa are toys for children. The weird and the unearthly are outlawed, and all mundane impossibilities which it may be are the commonplaces of the Pleiades, have been banished to some limbo of literalistic derision. One may write of horses and hippopotami, but not of hippogriffs, of biographers, but not of ghouls, of slum harlots or the hetairai of Knob Hill, but not of succubi. In short, all pipe dreams, all fantasies not authorized by Freudianism, by sociology and the five senses, are due for the critical horse laugh, when through ignorance, effrontery, or preference, they find a place in the subject matter of some author unlucky enough to have been born into the age of Jeffers, Hemingway, and Joyce. Let us examine these amazing dicta, fathered as they must be by people whose literal mindedness can be surpassed only by that of their four-footed betters. Surely it is axiomatic that in thought or art we deal not with things themselves, but with concepts of things. One may write, like Villon, of Muckle Meg and the Fairhelm Maker, or like Sterling, of Oak Lilith and the Blue-Eyed Vampire. In either case, only figments of the poet's mind are presented. It is for the creator, not the critic, to choose that image or symbol which suits him best. People who cannot endure anything with a tinge of trope or fantasy should confine their reading to the census returns. There, if anywhere, they will find themselves on safe ground. To touch on other considerations, why this thirst for literalism, for nothing but direct anthropological data, which would prescribe the infinitudes of imagination, would bar all that can lift us, even in thought, above the interests of the individual or the species? Does it not imply a sort of cosmic provincialism, an overweening racial egomania? Indeed, if all things fantastic or impossible are to be barred as literary, subjective matter, where is one to draw the line? 
many thinkers who lived before freud and some who live contemporaneously with him have maintained that the world itself is a fantasy or in de Cassare's phrase a superstition of the senses gaultier has pointed out that we live only by illusion by a process of seeing ourselves and all things as they are not the animals alone being without imagination have no escape from reality from poetic to psychoanalyst from poet to rag picker we are all in flight from the real truth is what we desire it to be and the facts of life are a masquerade in which we imagine that we have identified the maskers the highest intellectuals have always delighted in poetic fantasy and philosophic paradox knowing well that the universe itself is multiform fantasy and paradox and that everything perceived or conceived as actuality is merely one phase of that which has or may have innumerable aspects in this phantom whirl of the infinite among these veils of maya that are sevenfold behind sevenfold nothing is too absurd too lovely or dreadful to be impossible End of section 14 on fantasy. The favorite weird stories of Clark Ashton Smith, courtesy of H. Koenig. The Yellow Sign by Chambers. The House of Sounds by Scheel. The Willows by Blackwood. A View from a Hill by James. The Death of Halpin Fraser by Bierce. The House of Usher by Poe, The Mask of Red Death by Poe, The White Powder by Machen, The Call of Cthulhu by Lovecraft, The Color Out of Space. End of section 15. The Favorite Weird Stories of Clark Ashton Smith. The Demonian Face. About 1918, I was in ill health, and during a short visit to San Francisco, was sitting one day in the Bohemian Club, to which I had been given a guest's card of admission. Happening to look up, I saw a frightful, demonian face, with twisted, root-like eyebrows and oblique, fiery-slitted eyes, which seemed to emerge momentarily from air about nine feet above me, and lean toward my seat. The thing disappeared as it approached me, but left an ineffaceable impression of malignity, horror, and loathsomeness. If an hallucination, it was certainly seen amid appropriate surroundings. If an actual entity, it was no doubt the kind that would be likely to haunt a club in one of our modern Gomorrahs. End of section 16. The Demonian Face Medusa, written at the age of eighteen. As drear and barren as the glooms of death, it lies a windless land of livid dawns, nude to a desolate firmament with hills that seem the fleshless earth's outjutting ribs, and plains whose face is crossed and riveled deep, with gullies twisting like a serpent's track, the leprous touch of death is on its stones wherefore his token visible the head is throned upon a heap of monstrous rocks rough mounded like some shattered pyramid in a thwartly cloven hill ravine that seems the unhealing scar of huge of tellurian wars her lethal beauty crowned with twining snakes that animate her hair the gorgon reigns her eyes are clouds wherein death's lightnings lurk, yet even as men that seek the glance of life, the gazers come where, coiled and serpent-swift, those levens wait. As round an altar base, her victims lie, distorted blackened forms, of posture, horror, smitten into stone, time-caught in meshes of eternity, drawn back from dust and ruin of the years, and given to all the future of the world. The land is claimed of death, the daylight comes half strangled in the changing webs of cloud, 
that unseen spiders of bewildered winds weave and unweave across the lurid sun in upper air. Below no zephyr comes, to break with life the circling spell of doom, long vapor serpents twist about the moon, and in the windy murkness of the sky the guttering stars are wild as candle flames, that near the socket thus the land shall be, and death shall wait, throned in Medusa's eyes, till in the irremeable webs of night the sun is snared, and the corroded moon a dust upon the gulfs, and all the stars rotted and fallen like rivets from the sky letting the darkness down upon all things end of section 17 medusa read by ben tucker the primal city in these after days when all things are touched with insoluble doubt and dereliction I am not sure of the purpose that had taken us into that little visited land. I recall, however, that we had found explicit mention in a volume of which we possessed the one existing copy of certain vast pre-human ruins lying amid the bare plateaus and stark pinnacles of the region. How we had acquired the volume, I do not know, but Sebastian Polder and I had given our youth and much of our manhood to the quest of hidden knowledge— and this book was a compendium of all things that men have forgotten or ignored in their desire to repudiate the inexplicable. We, being enamored of mystery and seeking ever for the clues that material science has disregarded, pondered much upon those pages written in an antique alphabet. The location of the ruins was clearly stated, though in terms of an obsolete geography, and I remember our excitement when we had marked the position on a terrestrial globe. From the very first we were eager to behold the alien city, and certain of our ability to find it. Perhaps we wished to verify a strange and fearful theory which we had formed regarding the nature of the Earth's primal inhabitants. Perhaps we sought to recover the buried records of a lost science, or perhaps there was some other and darker objective. I recall nothing of the first stages of our journey, which must have been long and arduous, but I recall distinctly that we traveled for many days amid the bleak, treeless uplands that rose rapidly like a tiered embankment toward the range of high pyramidal summits guarding our destination. Our guide was a native of the country, sodden and taciturn, with intelligence little above that of the llamas which carried our supplies. He had never visited the ruins, but we had been assured that he knew the way, which was a secret remembered by few of his fellow countrymen. Rare and scant was the local legendary concerning the place and its builders. And after many queries, we could add nothing to the knowledge gained from the immemorial volume. The city, it seemed, was nameless, and the region about it was untrodden by man. Desire and curiosity raged within us like a calenture, and we gave no heed to the hazards and travails of exploration. Over us stood the eternal azure of vacant heavens, matching in their desolation the empty landscape. The route steepened, and above us now was a wilderness of cragged and chasmed rock, where nothing dwelt but the sinister wide-winged condors. Often we lost sight of certain imminent peaks that had served us for landmarks. But it seemed that our guide knew the way, as if led by an instinct more subtle than memory or intelligence and at no time did he hesitate. At intervals we came to the broken fragments of a paved road that had formerly traversed the whole of this difficult region. Broad, cyclopean flags of Nice, channeled as if by the storms of cycles older than human history. And in some of the deeper chasms we saw the eroded piers of great bridges that had spanned them in other time. These ruins reassured us, for in the primordial volume there was mention of a highway and of mighty bridges leading to the fabulous city. Polder and I were exultant, and yet I think we both shivered with a curious terror when we tried to read certain inscriptions that were still deeply engraved on the worn stones. No living man, though erudite in all the tongues of earth, could have deciphered those characters, and perhaps it was their very alienage that frightened us. 
We had sought diligently during laborious years for all that transcends the dead level of mortality through age or remoteness or strangeness. We had longed ardently for the esoteric and bizarre. But such longing was not incompatible with fear and repulsion. Better than those who had walked always in the common paths, we knew the perils that might attend our exorbitant and solitary researches. Often we had debated, with variously fantastic conjectures, the enigma of the mountain-builded city. But toward our journey's end, when the vestiges of that pristine people multiplied around us, we fell into long periods of silence, sharing the taciturnity of our stolid guide. Thoughts came to us that were overly strange for utterance. The chill of elder eons entered our hearts from the ruins, and did not depart. We toiled on between the desolate rocks and the sterile heavens, breathing an air that became thin and painful to the lungs, as if with some admixture of cosmic ether. At high noon we reached an open pass, and saw before and above us, at the end of a long and quickly opened perspective, the city that had been described as an unnamed ruin in a volume antedating all other known books. The place was built on an inner peak of the range, surrounded by snowless summits, little sterner and loftier than itself. On one side the peak fell in a thousand-foot precipice from the overhanging ramparts. On another it was terraced with wild cliffs. But the third side, facing toward us, was a steep acclivity with broken-down scarps and chimneys that would offer small difficulty to expert mountaineers. The rock of the whole mountain was strangely ruinous and black, but the city walls, though gapped and worn, to a like dilapidation, were conspicuous at a distance of leagues. Polder and I beheld the born of our worldwide search with thoughts and emotions which we did not voice. The Indian made no comment, pointing impassively toward the far summit with its crown of ruins. We hurried on, wishing to complete our journey by daylight, and plunging into an abysmal valley. We began at mid-afternoon the ascent of the slope toward the city. We were impressed anew by the abnormal and manifold cleavages of the granite. It was like climbing amid the overthrown and fire-blasted blocks of a titan citadel. Everywhere the slope was rent into huge, obliquely angled masses, often partly vitrified, which made the ascent a more arduous problem than we had expected. Plainly, at some former time, the stone had been subjected to the action of heat, and yet there was no volcanic craters amid the nearby mountains. Puzzling greatly, I recalled a passage in the old volume, hinting ambiguously at the dark fate that had long ago destroyed the city's inhabitants. But from this passage I could still draw no definite conclusion, for the ideation was too fantastic to be understood as anything more than a dubious figure of speech. We had left our three llamas at the slope's bottom, merely taking with us provisions for a night. Thus, unhampered, we made fair progress in spite of the ever-varying obstacles offered by the shattered scarps. After a while we came to the hewn steps of a stairway, mounting to the summit. But the steps had been wrought for the feet of colossi, and in many places they were part of the heaved and tilted ruin, so they did not greatly facilitate our climbing. The sun was still high above the western pass behind us, and for this reason, as we went on, I was much surprised by a sudden deepening of the char-like blackness on the rocks. Turning, I saw that several grayish, vapory masses, which might have been either cloud or smoke, were drifting idly about the summits that overlooked the pass. And one of these masses, rearing like a limbless figure, upright and colossal, had interposed itself between us and the sun. Sebastian and the guide had also noted this phenomenon— Clouds were almost unheard of amid those mountains in summer, and the presence of smoke would have been equally hard to explain. Moreover, the gray masses were wholly detached from each other and showed a peculiar opacity and sharpness of outline. At second glance, they did not really resemble any cloud forms we had ever seen, for about them there was a baffling suggestion of weight and solidity. Moving sluggishly into the heavens above the pass, they preserved their original contours and their separateness. They seemed to swell and tower, coming toward us on the blue air from which as yet no lightest stirring of wind had reached us. 
Floating thus, they maintained the rectitude of massive columns or of giants marching on a broad plain. I think we all felt an alarm that was nonetheless urgent for its vagueness. Somehow from that instant it seemed that we were pinned up by unknown powers and were cut off from all possibility of retreat. We had ventured into a place of hidden peril, and the peril was upon us. In the movement of the strange clouds there was something alert, deliberate, and implacable. Polder spoke with a sort of horror in his voice, uttering the thought which had already occurred to me. They are the sentinels who guard this region, and they have espied us. We heard a harsh cry from the Indian. Following his gaze, we saw that several of the unnatural cloud shapes had appeared on the summit toward which we were climbing, above the megalithic ruins. Some arose half-hidden by the walls as if from behind a breastwork. Others stood, as it were, on the topmost towers and battlements, bulking in portentous menace, like the cumuli of a thunderstorm. Then, with terrible swiftness, many more of the cloud presences towered simultaneously from the four quarters, emerging from behind the gaunt peaks or assuming sudden visibility in mid-air. With equal and effortless speed, as if convoked by an unheard command, they gathered in converging lines upon the air-like ruins. We, the climbers, and the whole slope about us, and the valley below, were plunged in a twilight weird and awesome as that of central eclipse. The air was still windless, but it weighed upon us as if burdened with the wings of a thousand cacodemons. I remember that I was overwhelmingly conscious of our exposed position, for we had paused on a wide landing of the mountain-hewn steps. We could easily have concealed ourselves amid the huge fragments on the surrounding slope. Before the nonce, we were incapable of the simplest movement. In a close-ranged army, the clouds mustered above and around us. They rose into the very zenith, swelling to insuperable vastness, and darkening like Tartarian gods. The sun had disappeared, leaving no faintest beam to prove that it still hung unfallen and undestroyed in the heavens. I felt that I was crushed into the very stone by the eyeless regard of that awful assemblage, judging and condemning. We had trespassed upon a region conquered long ago by strange elemental entities. We had approached their very citadel, and now we must meet the doom our rashness had invited. Such thoughts like a black lightning flared in my brain. Now for the first time I became aware of sound, if the word can be applied to a sensation so anomalous. It was as if the oppression that weighed upon me had grown audible, as if palpable thunders poured over and past me. I felt I heard them in every nerve, and they roared through my brain like torrents from the opened floodgates of some tremendous weir in a world of genie. Downward upon us, with limbless Atlantean stridings, there swept the cloudy cohorts. Their swiftness was that of supernatural things. The air was riven as if by the tumult of a thousand tempests. It was rife with an unmeasured elemental malignity. I recall but partially the events that ensued, but the impression of insufferable darkness, of demonic clamor and trampling, and the pressure of thunderous, burdenous onset remains forever indelible. Also, there were voices that called out with the stridor of clarions and a war of gods, uttering ominous syllables that the ear of man could never seize. Before those vengeful shapes, we could not stand for a moment. We hurled ourselves with a mad precipitation down the shadowed steps of the giant stairs. Polder and the guide were a little ahead of me, to the left hand, and I saw them in that baleful twilight on the verge of a deep chasm, which in our ascent had compelled us to much circumambulation. I saw them leap together, and yet I swear that they did not fall into the chasm, for one of the shapes was upon them whirling and stooping even as they sprang. There was a blasphemous, unthinkable fusion as of forms beheld in delirium. For an instant the two men were like vapors that swelled and swirled, towering high as the thing that had caught them, and the thing itself was a misty Janus, with two heads and bodies melting, no longer human, into its unearthly column. After that I remember nothing more except the sense of vertiginous falling. 
by some miracle i must have reached the edge of the chasm and flung myself into its depths without being overtaken as the others had been how i escaped the pursuit of those cloudy guardians is forevermore an enigma perhaps for some inscrutable reason of their own they permitted me to go when i returned to awareness stars were peering down upon me like chill incurious eyes between black and jagged lips of rock the air had turned sharp with the coldness of nightfall in a mountain land my body ached with a hundred bruises and my right forearm was limp and useless when i tried to raise myself a dark mist of horror stifled my thoughts struggling to my feet with pain-racked effort i called aloud though i knew that none would answer me then striking match after match i searched the chasm and found myself as i had expected alone nowhere was there any trace of my companions they had vanished utterly as clouds vanish somehow by night with a broken arm i must have climbed from the steep fissure i must have made my way down the frightful mountainside and out of that namelessly haunted and guarded land i remember that the sky was clear that the stars were undimmed by any semblance of cloud and that somewhere in the valley i found one of our llamas still laden with its stock of provisions plainly i was not pursued by the guardians perhaps they were concerned only with the warding of that mysterious primal city from human intrusion never shall i learn the secret of those ruinous walls and crumbling keeps nor the fate of my companions but still through my nightly dreams and diurnal visions the dark shapes move with the tumult and thunder of a thousand storms and my soul is crushed into the earth with the burden of their imminence and they pass over me with the speed and vastness of vengeful gods and i hear their voices calling like clarions in the sky with ominous world-shaking syllables that the ear can never seize end of section 18 the primal city end of the collected writings from the fantasy fan magazine by clark ashton smith